Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Company on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app to your smartphone so you can stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. We can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. And the spirits have a funny way of working. Uh, uh, oftentimes I connect with individuals or, or musicians who I'm not necessarily familiar with their backgrounds or even their music, but the vibe that they give off is just so positive and sort of just such in the light that uh, it's impossible for me to ignore that, uh, knowing that my mission at this point in my career, seven years into as, as radio host, is to inspire people to be themselves. So when I find people that are already being themselves, it is really refreshing, especially when it's on the bandstand and especially when they're arithmetist. And I got a chance today to talk to a great drummer. Um, the sky is the limit. He's just came off the slopes. Mark Levy, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here, man. And really, uh, really stoked to to chat with you a little bit. You know. Uh, I mean, it, well, I mean, it was you, you're you're. You know, I just I, I kind of wanted you to just talk about the idea of with cats um you know the whole I, undertaking of it was i mean uh, mcdougall said it was the most serendipitous thing that's ever happened to him in his life but i'm i'm yeah. i'm you know and i think he felt that he said everybody kind of felt that way but I, my question is yeah. like when I, I just saw you guys for the ref for reference i just saw these guys up nine thousand feet above sea level and in, in crested butte and in, in frisco and you know, I don't. Um, uh, I, I I noticed that. The, how do you? Here's the point. How do you guys develop your? How do you get a bigger bag of tunes? Uh, you know, McDougal said that you're going to possibly going to do a third album. You know, what I mean, where do the tunes? How do they emanate? Do you just start a groove? I mean, there are no vocals, so I just. Could you could you walk me through that? Yeah, totally. Um, they come from inside our minds and our our souls you know like i guess with any music but what i think is interesting about the music in circles around the sun in particular versus um you know maybe like a band that's centered around a singer songwriter or something like that is that um the music uh because it's instrumental you know i think it takes on um a life you know sort of different than if somebody were to write lyrics and have, hey, here's my, uh, this is the verse lick, and here's like the hook for the chorus, and maybe here's the bridge, or, or maybe can you guys help me write a bridge? You know, that's like kind of maybe more of a common songwriting as a group. Um, absolutely. No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, but with Cats, you know, it's, it's really just, uh, yeah, like on the last album is, a, is a, probably the best way I can explain it um, because we really just, came in and said like okay who's got something <laughs> you know and if if uh you had something you'd throw it out there and then also there'd be just times like i was i was just sitting in the um in the studio like playing a groove and you know that ended up be, being uh, something that we put down um i don't know specifically even what it was or if if that ended up being something that made it onto one of the records or or not but I know that, um, yeah, we're all really, really excited about doing more in the studio and releasing 
our third album if um, we're able to. You know, if the, the powers that be align once again. And uh, I, you know, my, my gut says that that they will and it'll be a great time. Um, but I don't know. Have I, did I answer your question? And the, you, you know, first of all, I, I should be also very clear on the Jake Feinberg show. There are no right or wrong answers. It's complete stream of consciousness. <laughs> so whatever comes to your mind, I just, cool. the more, I mean, some of the songs, they're clearly different. The changes are subtly different. Um, I think it's how, just coming from like, I mean, I hate labels and music, but I just wonder like, you know, do you, have you, do you, did you ever spend time in sort of a pretentious, um, uh, God, I hate it. I love jazz, but it just, you know, the jazzer mentality versus whatever circles is, which is, it, it, which is different. Um, I mean, have you spent time in sort of the, um, bop purist circles um and how did how did you loosen people up it, it seems to me like you've never that you've always got you've been able to get out of your own way i mean i i posted something i told rock alarm that i tagged i tagged him in one of the posts that i saw that i that i uh, videos that i played with you guys and he's like i'm glad i'm so glad mark's doing well i'm like yeah he sounds like himself i mean how did you learn to sound like yourself i mean it's really important oh man because i think that's a really good question. I, <laughs> I um, I think I think it just is because it is. I think it. I do think it was a conscious choice that I made a long time ago, where I said I don't want to be that musician up on stage acting like somebody else wants him to act, or mm. acting uh, trying to act cool, or like trying to act serious or trying to act you know I did that I did that when I was in playing in orchestras and uh, you know wind ensembles small uh, chamber ensembles and the like you can't fucking smile if you're back there smiling because you're like digging that I mean I guess you can probably I would say probably the majority of like if you get into like a big orchestra and you're a, you're a pro and you're a badass and you're killing your part i really doubt that the conductor would be like excuse me sir on the snare drum stop smiling you know i i doubt that would happen but <laughs> i think because i spent so much time in in that uh, world of you know putting on a tuxedo to go and play a concert wow uh, wow you know i wow. that was like i think when i when i when i left that world and rock alarm was like the sort of one of the two teachers that I had at the time that sort of shepherded me shepherded me from that world into the world I am in now and um, you know have had been in ever since uh, those guys it was Jerry Leak who teaches at New England Conservatory yep. in Berkeley oh, incredible yeah. yes. percussionist um, just like master teacher master player he's written many books he's incredible Jerry Leak if anybody's out there and wants to just, you know, have an outlet for um, amazing rhythmic knowledge, find Jerry. He, he has his own publishing company, um, so you can buy his books, I think, directly from him. Um, that's J-E-R-R-Y-L-E during that transition. And this all happened at the New England Conservatory, you know. So, like, I was also so fortunate to be there as a classical percussionist out of high school, you know, uh, studying music like wow what 
what a privilege, you know? Uh, no, this is this is like really important. Uh, this is so important. I'm talking to Mark Levy here, one of the most gifted drummers, makes it look completely effortless on the bandstand, <clears throat> at least with circles around the sun. Oh, but, I mean, what was the shepherding like? Because there's this there's a way to do it where you're denigrating or putting down other music and then there's a way to sort of say let the, like the rock the rock alarm, let the body dance yeah. I, i'd love you to just talk if you yeah, talk about yeah. these like these 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 shepherding techniques they either leak or rock alarm uh fused you know uh foisted on you uh okay yeah so rock alarm i i can i'll just start with him because i think for what we're talking about he was more really really like the guy that was just getting to the point um, he was, he saw very clearly, um, and instantaneously in my playing that I was like, you know, Oh, like in the box, I guess <laughs> for, for a lack of a better, you know, phrase, I was very much, uh, you know, trying to like play the right thing all the time. Wow. And rarely, if ever, could you do that with rock alum? Um, but sometimes, you know, he'd be like, yeah, that's good. That's good. Like you did it there. You did it there for a little bit, <laughs> but now we need to like, we now, now we need to like make that little bit like longer. Oh, I and love there it. I there love you go. It. Like there's the, you know, so, so the way that his lessons work as a drummer, um, you know, he's an incredible drummer, but he never played, he didn't play much drums in the lessons. He was playing piano, like 80% of the time and then sometimes he would show you things on the drums and also just his style is like maybe he would show you something like it was going to be a quick little let me show you something and then he'd be sitting there for like 30 minutes just like you know incredible incredible player so like I learned a lot from him playing with him on the drums and him on the piano and him being like no stop like what are you doing why are you doing that don't do that do anything but that you know that kind of stuff, or he'd be like, or he'd be like, yeah, like getting into it while he's playing, or he, one time I remember, it was amazing, he, he was like getting into it, he like reached down in the bag that was like on the floor next to me, pulled out his giant crystal, and put it up on the piano, and he was like, you know, he he's kind of like, oh, la, la, boo, la, da, da, da. <laughs> kind of like, he has this sort of language of his own, um, this like musical language, and I'll never forget those lessons in that little corner room at, uh, you know, like the fourth floor of Jordan Hall or whatever floor it was on. But, man, I guess he, he was sort of tough love, too, because he wasn't, like, he would never give you lollipops. He'd never hand out lollipops. Like, it was always just like, yeah, man, you're doing good. Or, like, man, you're not really, you know, you're not really hearing it right and you're not feeling it right. Like, go home and contour this music and that's like when you said um i'm sorry tell me the phrase again the, uh let the body dance rhythmic, yeah let the body dance so contouring was like the only assignment he would ever give me it was never like i want you to go home and transcribe this tony williams solo right um, that, yeah, yeah. You know, was, right that was that was like not the thing it was the thing was like go home and contour this Tony Williams solo or, or whatever. You, you, it was usually not like like a drum solo. It was usually like a track. Like, go home and listen to John Coltrane, uh, you know, 
uh, what's that man? What's that? I'm spacing the name of this record. Um, Year old Stockholm. Yeah, right, uh, I, right. That, right. I love that record. He's like, go home and con-. and that was actually Roy Haynes um, with the quartet, not Elvin Jones for that session. Interestingly enough, but I, I remember that. Oh. that being one of the things that he sent me home with. And then I came back and I kind of you you have to like you know you show him <laughs> like what you did and basically t- contouring is interpretive dancing. It's just using your ears and then letting your body describe what you're hearing essentially so for me as a drummer that was sort of like having trouble like opening up that was the way he shepherded me into the world of like look you got well i mean um, you know the the, the the because i think what i'm certain what i hear is that what's so uh invigorating is just you 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 know th- there's a homogenization of sound mainly coming out of academia now because you can tell students that have certain teachers, not drummer per se, but I mean horn players. You know, they come out, they sound exactly like their teacher. With rock alum, mm-hmm. you have the contours, which means you just have the sort of framework of it, and then it allows you to put your own life force into the groove so that it's your voice, right? I mean, that to me is what it is completely about. Um, and 100%, yeah, you know, and and, and I mean, also, like, yeah. good luck trying to sound like rock alum. <laughs> You well, know, and it, and the truth like is, I'm, I cannot wait to send you our, our. I mean, he was a vibes player to start. You know, I mean, he was really playing a lot right. of melodic stuff. Uh, and you know, I, I mean, did you were you able to also when he said you got to, you know, you really got to contour this stuff out. I mean, do you think I'm just asking you to talk to the general audience now or any other drummers? I mean, do you think that the advice he was giving you? was meant to be done in isolation or were you able to shed at like the Middle East or did you have gigs that you could sort of work the stuff out on with other peeps or was it primarily by yourself? Oh yeah. Uh, a lot of both. Mm-hmm. You know, at that time I was shedding like anywhere from like three to six, sometimes eight hours a day. Yeah, it was a full-time gig. Yeah. You on, were shedding. Yeah. Yeah. On top of like the rehearsals you were going to for school and, maybe the extracurricular combo you were doing with your buddies or like, you know, whatever it was. Uh, so there was a lot of both, um, shedding by myself, um, you know, playing with a metronome sometimes probably played with metronome quite, quite a bit, if not, you know, almost always back then. Um, now what was, now what was the reason? And what was that about? Cause I mean, why, why did you want to, did you, you just wanted to make sure that you weren't in time or, why, why would you lean on that? Yeah, I mean, so, like, the, I mean, in my view, the primary uh, purpose, primary role of a drummer is to reinforce the time. It's not, I don't think it's, like, a demonstrative thing. It's not like, here's the time, listen to me. Exactly, I'm the exactly. I'm, you know, oh, yeah. It's like, it's like, uh if you have, I, I just think it's really, really super important to have a non-emotional, um, totally objective relationship with time as a drummer. Because if in your, in, you're in the moment and musically it's like, you know, you're blasting off with your, your band and like things are amazing and 
you know, maybe you're not breathing as much as you should. Like, good luck keeping the time solid if you don't have a good relationship with it, like, at at your core, you know? So, like, it's kind of like, um, I mean, it's like meditation, really, you know? Like, if you don't do the work, you're not going to get the benefits. You can talk about how good meditation is all you want, but, you know, I think that there's no way, there's no shortcuts there. You know, I think it's the same way with time. There's no shortcuts. You just got to spend, like, when I was a kid, I, um, like, young, you know, sort of weirdo, like, just getting into drums. I was just, like, so, um, like, just in love with drums, right? Right off the bat, I was, like, 10 years old. And then, like, school came around, and there was, like, ensembles, and I got into the drum line and all this stuff, and I, I just, like, was living music, which there's another... I thought I was living music. That's, an, that's a rock alarm term that I'm still unpacking. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I cannot wait to send you my right. interview with rock alarm. You're going to be dying. Go ahead. Yeah, oh, man. Yeah, right on. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's like I would I would sleep with a metronome on sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I dig. Like it, and, and, like, now I think it's crazy, but I don't know. I think it, it, it all served its purpose. You know, and also I don't think that music – I don't ever – like circles around the sun really um it's super rare i haven't done a session in the last five years probably where somebody's asked me to play to a click um but actually that's not true like they might be like we're gonna do this track to a click and it's like cool you know i, I love that my my old friend the click it, <laughs> you it brings you back to that yogic state not, yeah. it's like yeah more often than not um especially if somebody like if somebody's trying to do some um, post-production and they they know they're going to be editing a lot of takes together or something, I've been in more recently are are more like organically focused. So it's like, uh, you know, cat circles around the sun never ever play too quick, um, and maybe it's apparent sometimes. I don't I don't really know, but it, the the goal there is, um, you know, you have a reference with like a objective reality of rhythms and it's, it's just like a metronome it's just steady time so then once you have that like go go and be free you know because you should have the foundation and you need the foundation but you, then you can go and play around time and odd time signatures um you know or, or just things you know not rushing or or dragging and and really at that point it's an energy game you know, and I think a lot of music is an energy game, um, where, where you you know, you're constantly having to stay in the moment, kind of working with that energy. And if you, if you let your energy lapse, then you know you'll feel it in the music. You'll you'll hear it. Um, it's interesting you bring and, that up because uh, when I first interviewed Billy Cobham, uh, when he went down to Baggies on the Lower West Side. <clears throat> uh, it was just for a while. Um, uh, he met McLaughlin at a, uh, one, uh, the, like a you know, CTI session or a and session. And so it was just him and John. And he, after a day or so of, you know, basically, you know, straight playing, he realized the things he needed to work on was playing in odd meters. And he said, and his breathing. He needed to work on his breathing. Um, especially because when you're playing bar after bar after bar after bar, and I, I mean, can you talk? I, I mean, as honestly as you, I love this idea of this whole thing of objective relationship to time as opposed to subjective. What would be like? So you guys know there's no click click tracks in, in cats, and and there's 
you know, you're you're not playing to a click and there's an objective relationship. But what could you give an example to a layperson about what would be a subjective relationship to time in cats? Like uh, adhering to something well, or guess, go ahead. Maybe I should just clarify what I meant by that. I meant like objective relationship to time because a metronome doesn't care. I did. I, 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 care. I, I, I did. I did. It's just, yeah, yeah. So then, and then like subjective is like we all, you know, we all have a subjective relationship with time, you know? So I think like everybody, um, I, I guess I was just kind of speaking about that in terms of like, as a student, I think it was really important to just study and have like an anchor like that, that was the metronome for me because I was also in this world of like, I, I was studying classical Indian music on the tabla with Jerry Leak, which is very regimented and, uh, you know, it's like math, basically. It's all very composed and a lot of the information is done orally, so it's like super cerebral and like I could just feel my mind like growing in... <laughs> in that way um but no no i mean i, I appreciate you clear i mean the, here's what i wanted you to i appreciate you clarifying that um the but just what was the you had never i just want to ask you this question because it's it's confounding to me um and, and this is a good lesson for anybody out there um what was the hardest part for you um for the three days that you made circles around the sun. I mean, and just for the point of reference, you guys were given about a week of time to put together five hours of music. You had never played with oh. Dan Horn in your life. Um, you're talking about the first, that was actually, you were given two days. Two days. To make five hours of music. And <laughs> we had never met in our life. So, so do, I mean, just yeah. from your point of view, your personal, I mean, you would already, listen, you would already have credentials. You know, McDougal told the story. They said, do you know a drummer? He said, I absolutely do. Talk about that experience. What was the hardest thing, especially because you didn't stop playing, you had to just keep playing these large, large chunks of music at one time. Yeah. Yeah, it was um, an amazing experience it was really so I, I guess just picture this you know you're like in you're just like this kid and you're working your tail off road dogging it with your band from Colorado and like hey let's I, I like the way you play let's keep in touch and then like flash forward to like a couple years later <laughs> you're getting a call from Neil Casal that's like, hey, man, um, I got the call to do this thing, you know, from Justin Kreuzman. It's like, you know, we're going we're gonna to be recording the set break music for the Grateful Dead's Charity oh, Russia. man. You know, I was like, I'm just like, uh, you know, why are you calling me? You know, just like in my head, I'm like, this, the voice in my head is screaming, like, why is he calling you? Like, what's going on right oh, now? You know, and then it was sort of like, then I had to like just calm down for a second and be like, okay, who cares why he's calling me? He's calling me and I'm going to go and kill this session, wow. you know? And this is like, actually I talked to my brother who my brother Ben plays bass in the Boston symphony. And he won that gig when he was 22 years old. So it wow. was kind of like, he sort of like shocked the bass world, at least in my, my perspective, you know, 
I was his younger brother, like super proud of him, but also he just like, you know, locked down one of the best gigs in music. Really, at I mean, twenty, at twenty-two, at the, I mean, that's but, that's it's unheard. Sorry, I, I digress. I digress. That's fine. I often do. No, 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 no. no this is the, the point. Is you were the point is that you? What did he? What did he say to you though? What did he say to you? I, I talked. To him, yeah, thank you. I feel that. I talked to my brother and I was like, dude, Ben, I got this crazy uh, gig to go and record for like two days, and we're just gonna like record all these like extended sort of like background jams and like. I'm actually not exactly sure what my perception of what the <laughs> right. um, thing was going to be. I don't think anybody time, did. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. Hard, it's, it's hard to say now, in retrospect, if I had any idea at all what it was going to be. I probably didn't, really. Um, so I, I talked to my brother. I'm like, dude, I don't know. I'm kind of like I'm super nervous. I don't know how I'm going to go in there and crush it. And he's like, dude, you're thinking about this all wrong. Don't think about why they called you. Just, you know, be be stoked if they did, and then what you need to worry about is showing up, finding your center, and contributing to the music. So it's like, wow, that just sort of like erased all of, like, you know, basically saying like, you know, there's no point in worrying, which is wise, wise words there anyway, but um, and he so said, be, he said, up. he said, be part of the conversation, right? Contribute, be an accompanist, because, because, right? Yeah, just show, like, be there find your center and, and then contribute from, you know, a real place. And that's like, that's kind of going back to your previous question. Like my, I didn't want to try to worry about like, okay, you got to get into like drumming mark mode now. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> I just want to be me. I want it to be like a real expression of, uh, you know, of music and communicating through music and vibration and, that is it so like if people think that uh maybe i don't know obviously nobody's come up to me and and said to my face i think it's stupid that you smile all the time what are you doing you know or something like that but i'm sure that that like thought i don't know i i just like can't help but smile when i'm playing because this is all it's all happening and sometimes it's not all happening and you know it's not all smiles. Sometimes it's like, and right, like right, right. you're like a bulldog, like trudging through the, the whatever, you know? And uh, sometimes I feel like that too, but that's cool. And, and that's like a different emotion. You know, it's not always that. It's just whatever it is, it's real. And that's like, cool. You don't even have to worry about it. Well, so no, I mean, let me, let me just be clear. I uh, the, Don't ever stop smiling because there's only two things you can do. And Steve Gadd told me this, uh, you know, the, you know, there's just, you can either look towards the light or the dark. And, you know, for me, you're just a beacon of light uh, on top of the fact that you're just like you make it look effortless. So, I mean, I, if you're at a cat show and you're in a bad mood, like, you know, I mean, maybe then you'd be resentful if Mark Levy was smiling ear to ear. But otherwise, it's like it's just part of the gumbo, man. I mean, I you know, I, well, I mean, all, I, I mean, to me, in a bad mood at the end of the show, I mean. Maybe, maybe that's, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, it's coming like you're like you told me up in Frisco, like it's like medicine for you. It is that, you know, it's also medicine for me. And like to hear you, you say that and, you know, uh, just about consistent rhythm uh, over a extended period of time in 
a group of people. I think that there's got to be an undeniable brain chemistry reaction happening when you just do that. I mean, if you've ever meditated for, you know, it, you have to meditate for, in my experience, usually like 20 minutes yeah. at the minimum yeah. to like really feel like some sort of a transcendent mental state. And I think that why, why wouldn't that be the case in music too? And I think that Circles Around the Sun is just like an, an amazing opportunity to throw colors and, you know, just like move slowly without any, you know, we're not slowly, I guess just moving like at a steady pace. We're not like trying to go anywhere too fast. We're not like trying to um, make all the moves, like ba 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 You know, it's like that's not the kind of music that that it is. Um, which all that's great, you know. All kinds of music are fantastic, but like you don't pull out a hammer to screw in a screw, you know. Like so, in this music, we we're using a totally different tool set than I think is common. And, and that's why I then started feeling and also seeing and getting the feedback that the music sort of is like, it's able to kind of like take you to where you want to go or like another place, just like kind of transport you and let you wander. You know, that there it is, let it wander. Let it wa- well, I mean, you know, listen, I mean, it's the best, I mean, I yeah. can tell you right now, being back in Tucson, uh, I am. I've just been. I, I'm still feeling that it's the it's the best antidepressant in the world. And I, part of it is the music, and part of it is the cats. Great cats, and and you're one of them. And I got to go pick up my daughters. But let's just figure out. Let's. I'll keep this on the shelf, and we'll merge the two. We'll do. We'll do another hour. We just cook for thirty minutes. Uh, it was uh, go back on the slopes or go meditate uh, and uh, and just keep doing your thing, man. You're 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 saving me, man. Hey, man, thank you so much. I mean, you know, we're we're doing we're doing it with the hopes that um, it can serve a purpose in a in people's lives in a positive way. You know, just and also we we're very mindful of the the fact that um, you know it's a it's a great privilege to be able to to make music and i mean i shouldn't say we i shouldn't talk for the rest of the guys but i think you know that's obvious
Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773's Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Company on Power Talk, please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app to your smartphone. You can stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. Can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today, and it's an honor to bring back fantastic drummer, He's got a gig, so he's got some things to do. Mark Levy, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thanks, man. Good to be back. You know, um, I just wanted you to talk a little bit, um, could be in any setting, but how you learned to how you learned to play with volume when you didn't necessarily have the electronics. I mean, I'll read you this quote from... Uh, uh, Harold Jones, um, he just talked about um, the idea that <clears throat> he said, Dinah Washington owned a club in Southside Chicago. I was in the house band there. I played McKee's Show Lounge and the Pershing. Playing in different bands and, pl and different kinds of rooms, you learn how to play with volume accor according to what you're hearing. I always had to do mine physically and acoustically. So that, that's what I wanted to ask you about. How did you create volume physically and acoustically? Cool. Um, physically, I guess for a drummer, volume is, is kind of a physical thing. Uh, I mean, one of like a good example of that goes way back to my, my days in the drum line in high school. Uh, and we would refer to dynamic markings in inches, uh, actual literal height in inches. So, like, a pianissimo would be at one inch. And, like, a piano would be at maybe, like, two inches. And then mezzo piano, three inches. Mezzo forte, four inches. You know, like, and on and on to, until you're at, like, for TCCMO and you're at like you know full full extension like mm -hmm. probably about 16 inches or something like that you know so that that physically like if you have a wider stroke or a, a higher stroke it's gonna you know correlate to a, a higher volume so I guess that's is that is that sort of along is that answer the question well i mean no i mean it's it, what what i was trying to get i mean it's a little bit um obsolete in the time that we're in now because um you basically can go in for a sound check and and get your sound the way you want it but i just wonder like on the tour that you were just on with cats like were, were there rooms that like like you had to um create volume through your own human human soul and, and, and because the acoustics, you couldn't hear yourself so well? Well, I sort of have, you know, I'm sort of in a position where I can't really answer that because I'm cheating the natural system because I'm using in-ear monitors. So I've got like these, you know, I've, I made the plunge recently and I got, I bought these, Holy cow! Are you serious? You have monitors. You have, yeah, this is like very Grateful Deadish. Yeah, yeah. Well, so so um, everybody in the band is using floor monitors. Um, 
especially helpful in venues like the ones that we were just playing. Um, and why is know, that? Why is large. that? Why is that? Okay, so imagine you're in a, a little club and the ceiling is, you know, like 10 feet high and it's pretty small. Like a perfect example, probably, you know, a lot of music lovers out there have been to this place, the Maple Leaf Bar in New Orleans is a perfect example of like a very like cozy little confined club. And it's kind of like a shotgun room in that the stage side uh, and all the sound is very contained. So take that picture and then juxtapose that with the Beacon Theater. Uh, so like that stage in itself, the stage, just the deck is probably bigger you know, by a magnitude of <laughs> multiples than the whole Maple Leaf are building. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So then you add in like 2,000 seats and balconies and a 100-foot ceiling and curtains and like all this crazy slapback reverb coming from just the natural sound coming off the stage. Just, you know, it's a totally crazy different environment than compared to like the maple leaf or a small stage in a small room like that. So I found it hard to compete sonically in that environment with those big stages uh, and still get a good picture of the dynamic range because I was relying so much just to hear like Adam's keyboards. I was relying so much on the monitor and then to like hear that over the volume that I felt like I had to play to fill that space, it ended up being like the the threshold ended up being super high. And then I felt like we were losing a lot of dynamic uh, subtlety and the dynamic range was just compressed towards the higher, louder side of the of the spectrum. So I I decided uh, to use my I have an in ear monitor rig you know the they offer like just like putting them in my ears without any signal going just to start out with serious isolation and then you can just feed in whatever you want so I ended up feeling like I could really hear every single note I was playing and the you know nuance of ghost notes on the snare drum or you know light touch on the cymbal and meanwhile, I could also hear every one of Adam's notes crystal clear and every one of Neil's notes crystal clear. And the bass response on those things is even really awesome. So I guess to go back to your question, I feel like I can't really answer that honestly because we're sort of existing in a, in like a, you know, a controlled environment that just exists inside of my ears. I think so, it's, I think it's really well put. Um, you know, I, I, um, do you guys talk about like I mean the Beacon was the biggest venue you played in on this tour? No, not which is crazy, right? But um, we were so we were opening wow. to Green Sky Bluegrass, right? Who um, you know they're just on fire <laughs> right now, and I've I've known those guys for geez like ten ten years or so, almost ten years, uh, and it's so cool to see them just reaching 
that level of success filling those rooms, selling out some of those rooms in some cases. So, like, we played this room called The Met in Philly that just reopened after being dark for, wow. like, 50 years and having some, you know, whatever, turmoil of a large theater like that. That place was, it was like the biggest brick building I've ever been <laughs> inside in my whole life. It was the size of the wall, the walls. They're just normal, regular-sized bricks. But, man, it was just the the scale of this place was so huge. I think that might have been a venue, but also we ended the run at the Tabernacle, or at Tabernacle in Atlanta, which is like 2,500 cap or something like that. Um and honestly, I don't even know uh, officially what the beacon is off the top of my head, so I could be wrong. But in, in any case, you know, they're all really large venues, so the way that they would react sonically was a little bit different, obviously, from room to room, but very similar also in a lot of ways. So, you know, the other guys chose just to go, you know, acoustic or uh, just with like floor monitors, you know, um, but I don't know. It really helps. It really helps me out in, in those venues. Well, no, I mean, it's to have like a microscope on my sound. Um, do you, uh, can you, how many, how many ghosts, do you play a lot of ghost notes and cats? Uh, yeah. I mean, can you, can you explain yeah. the subtleties of the, uh, I, I guess, cause I mean, when you're going like, I just remember like, talking to Ozzy Ollers when he was playing with Garcia and like, you know, they, they'd go for like as many bars as you wanted, you know, you, someone could go get a drink and come back and someone's still playing. Obviously, you know, you know, yeah. you know what I'm getting at? And it's like, you know, like, yeah. I mean, in order to keep the, the groove where it needs to be and the pulse, um, but you do, I mean, can you explain how you use ghost notes to uh, stretch the, um, the, the, uh, the vocabulary? Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, so I guess I could like sing if if I was gonna play a groove like boot, bat, boot, bat, that doesn't have any ghost notes. But then, like ghost notes, you can also think of them as ornamentation, or basically, uh, if you were to boil it all down, you could just say like you have ghost notes and accents, or like accents and taps. Sometimes like taps, a tap is synonymous with a ghost note. It's just a much lighter touch on the snare drum or, I mean, usually we're talking about ghost notes with the snare drum. It's possible to put it everywhere on the kit, I guess, but, you know, if he's talking about like a funky groove with a lot of ghost notes, it's, you know, almost for sure they're talking about ghost notes on the snare drum. So it'd be like, it's like, all that stuff in between is the ghost notes. So essentially, I I use ghost notes with cats specifically. It's the chatter or the comping that's going on between the backbeats, which are sort of like the goalposts, you know? And like I love it, yeah. Everything is sort of happening within the pocket, which if you where the one is and where the backbeats are. And then you've got a pocket just within that framework. So then whatever happens in that framework is basically just, you know, for 
for cats and my playing with like Neil soloing or Adam soloing or even like Adam accompanying Neil or vice versa. There's a lot of comping going on. It's like rhythmic, just rhythmic comping within the pocket. So without ghost notes, I wouldn't be able to do that because those notes that are being played as ghost notes would become like just homogenous with like the backbeat. And it would sound like, you know, like that isn't funky. Whereas you play the same exact rhythm, but, but you know my uh, my beatboxing skills are not on point. Um, no, I'm, it, the but, point is that uh, it it allows it to breathe. Totally, and yeah, yeah, it allows it to breathe, and you're sort of outlining the space. That's right. Or or like you know uh, moving through the space, like but holding the space at the same time. You know, so yeah, it's kind of like it is exactly that. It lets it breathe, but also you know. It ghost notes are what make a groove feel the way it does. Like you could just play that simple rock beat, boom, dut, boom, dut, boom. And if you put in some swung ghost notes versus some straight ghost notes, it's going to be a completely different feel, you know. But also, depending on the volume that you choose to play the ghost notes, and even playing the ghost notes in the center of your snare drum versus playing them towards the edge, you're going to get a totally different timbre, you know, and that's again, that's like just a dynamic choice, you know, like how strong should these ghost notes be? Should they be pretty like laid back and swinging or should they be like, you know, a little bit more staccato and like really pushing the pocket, you know? And I guess it just depends on what's going on. And then it, then it's just like you got to – it's a matter of using your ears and just reacting appropriately to what the other musicians are doing sonically and what they're doing feel-wise and then also how those things relate to each other. You know, like Neil is amazing at uh, kind of like this – I don't know. He's got this super rad like metal – like part of his background absolutely his dna yeah, yeah his musical dna and that that stuff totally comes out like when he's really like you know he'll he'll just get this like freaking beefy gnarly rich guitar tone that like if i were to respond to that in you know a light <laughs> with like a light touch it would be kind of messed up for you know energetically so like when Neil plays that kind of a like gnarly tone, everybody else is reacting uh, with a timbre that you know can like support that tone. You know, as a soloist, like out, then you know in relation to a soloist, our job as rhythm players and you know comping them is to is to support it and like you know help keep that wave underneath you know, the board or like, you know, the carpet underneath his feet or whatever metaphor you want to use. But I think it definitely gets back to like a volume relates to tone relates to, you know, energy and like where you're placing things then has effect on how it feels if it's laid back or if it's really like driving and tough sounding. 
you know, all that stuff. I mean, I guess that's why that's why they're instruments, you know. <laughs> we play instruments because it's like they're instruments of our our voice, you know, like our inner voice. Uh, and that that's reflected in, you know, how hard we hit the instrument, or at least as a drummer, you know, directly related to how hard you're striking the instrument. And it doesn't mean it has to be, like, angry and hard and, and there's, you know, needs to be tension or aggression necessarily, you know. You can play really, like, really legato tone or, like, really, really working, but, the, like, the sound is just, like, unbelievable. Like, I was just listening to, uh, like, the Jimmy Page with the Black Crows at the Greek album today while I was skiing <laughs> and just the way that Steve Gorman plays the drums dude it's like I can I don't know maybe it's because I've also seen him play so I know how like physically uh, you know he's just kind of commanding presence he's just like a really big dude and he makes the drums look tiny and he just like beats the shit out of them and has an incredible tone um, and, you know, you could close your eyes at um, many points in that album and think you're listening to Bonham or, you know, even like Chris, Chris Robinson's doing such an amazing job of singing those parts. He sounds a lot like Robert Plant at times, you know, but again, it's kind of like these guys are doing that thing, like the, the Zeppelin thing. And like that involves like a massive amount of energy and, you know, if they weren't exerting that energy, it wouldn't sound like that. Just like straight up. There's no way of like, there's shortcuts, you know, in, in the energy game, you know, it like is, or it isn't sort of like, I mean, I guess there's a spectrum of is and isn't, but you know what I mean? It's like, you gotta like, you gotta, you gotta go through it to get to it. That's like, (laughs) all of that little thing. (laughs) You know, this is one thing, I I mean, I I know it's like taking um, interludes for the dead off the table. Um, I was transcribing my second interview with with Al DiMiola, and and I I mean, I'm sure that he has, I mean, I'm sure it's all love-hate with him because he just says what's on his mind, and he's very opinionated, and he's talking about really the the modern day recording session um uh, you're what you just talked about the one word i've encapsulated is it's all about focus you guys are completely in the moment uh riding that wave together listening to each other but in the recording yeah. uh scene especially with gen xers like myself or even younger cats um th- the technology is so insatiable the desire for the technology is so insatiable that you know you'll have they'll go through a you know Demio was talking about you know modern you know going through they'll play a tune and then uh you know the drummer's on the drum stool checking his emails or checking his uh his texts and you know with with return to forever uh you know i mean they didn't there was one phone in the control room and they told the secretary turn it off and that was it and so they were in even within the, the the takes of the tunes, um, you know they were communic they were talking, yeah. they were working stuff yeah. out, and I'm and I'm and I'm wondering what is the credo 
of uh, of circles or in general just sort of you're you're I mean I know he's right but then I I see authentic cats and I wonder to myself maybe I mean he was like saying if I ever do another session I'm going to tell these tell the cats to leave the leave their phones at the hotel and he's like of course they won't because it's like drugs you know but but in, <laughs> but what, what what is it like for circles do you yeah. guys do you, are you are you disciplined and, and focused in the studio like that where they're really uh, you're able to to focus exactly on what the intention of the of the entire session is about I would say so I mean of course my well our experience as a band in general but specifically in the studio is pretty limited scope you know if like all things considered but I can tell you what it was like for those basically we spent a total of like in the history of the band we've only spent a total of like six or seven days of track not a not a huge uh test case to go, to go on there there's not not a, a huge, not a huge san- and not but a huge still, sample size there yeah right <laughs> right right but still i i definitely um you know and that's like that's like with the full band you know we on that last record there was a few other days of just um overdubs going on so that's a different vibe because like you know the guy that's working on his overdubs like everybody else in the control room with like varying levels of involvement and like what's going on because like like yeah you might be checking your emails but also you're there but then when we were tracking as like a full band i I feel like it was a lot more focused you know we'd be like all right let's get in there and we just all go in the room and we'd be in there for like you know like an hour or two whatever just like but there's very little just also i think in the process like you mentioned you know they get done with the take and the drummer is like whatever checking his email in the cats recording process there's really no like time for that because we're all recording everything live so you know we'd like do a take and then just like do another take of something else or maybe the same thing. So it's such a, it's a beautiful way to do it. I mean, the funny thing is that's exactly the style of the, I mean, I just interviewed Dennis coffee today, you know, from the funk brothers or the second iteration. And, you know, like they, they had to do the, each recording session was three hours. They had to do one song perfectly in an hour. You know, they had to read a huge rhythm chart. They had to get a feel for the tune and then do it. So doing it live yeah you're not going to be i mean your tunes are also really long too you know they tend to go on for a long (laughs) time you know it's not a three minute radio friendly thing right no (laughs) yeah so it's kind of an interesting like you know interesting when you are well then 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 in the what do you say i mean you've been on other recording sessions you know i mean this is not your only gig so how do you feel? How do you have you been a leader on a of a band or on on a session yet? Um, not no, I, I I can't really say that I have been honestly. Not for like a full, uh, not like a full session or anything. But you know, I've been like kind of in producer role before. Um, well, I was I guess, gonna I was just gonna say to you, what do you think? I want you to talk about what you know the Mark Levy strengths of bringing the producer cap to the table because you know i mean whatever a producer cap is a little bit different than than just being a session cat 
But what do, what do you bring? What are the intangible qualities that you think you bring? You know, you give an example if you can. Um, in to the studio specifically. Yeah. Well, I mean, just I mean, if you in in the production setting, I mean, uh, I guess what I'm trying to get at is the values. Uh, like, you know, are you just always trying to facilitate? Are you trying to keep the vibe the right way? Are you trying to, you know? What are the intangible qualities that you bring to help us to help a record be a good record? Yeah, well, cool. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely um, so many variables that would affect the way that I would approach a session. Um, you know, everybody's different, and like some people are very collaborative, and some people are more like, here's the thing and this is what I want you to do um, rather than like hey this is the thing and what do you want to do yeah I did I did um, yeah I did so, so yeah there's definitely like different you know kind of different playing fields uh, in that sense but I guess what I think I uh, like to think that I bring to sessions is uh, well I don't know so I've been you know, it's I've been a strength of mine just as a drummer to be able to lay down full takes. Um, you know, just kind of like make the post-production vibe a little bit less uh, like intrusive to the musical process. And like, but sometimes also music is designed to be heavily produced. So like that, doesn't really apply in those cases but do you think do you um, think that that i mean do you have a historical arc enough to know if if that's always been the case or is it only more in like modern mod times when like post-production's been you know like <clears throat> like you said it's sometimes it's essential well you can say no i i, I, I don't know the like, answer to that i really yeah. don't know no i don't i don't know if i do because i i kind of think like i in order to have that kind of a scope, I think you'd have to have lived through uh, yeah, Dick. Yeah. the age of tape, you know, and mm -hmm. and then like know what the process is like, you know. If, if you're if you're recording the tape, I mean, you're doing whole takes, and then maybe you're splicing in some some sections or something like that. But that's like well, I get. I mean, that leads back to what to co what Dennis Coffee said to me today. He said. You know, if they couldn't make a mistake, that was his point. You could not make a mistake because then they'd have to stop the tape they'd the whole thing and do the whole thing again. So you really yeah. had to be right in it, you know, and 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 I guess, you know, um, you know, have I guess has has, has there been a time when you've been t when you've been looked to to provide some kind of uh, production? in some way maybe you weren't the producer on the session but you provided some kind of intangible or some kind of bridge that that solved a problem uh yeah yeah for sure i you know like with the congress with recording with those guys it was very uh i don't know like how to really explain it it was sort of these guys they were bringing fully formed songs but then there was a lot that needed to happen um, like, you know, he'd have, there, there'd be like a, a song form and they'd have like the intro and the verse and the chorus and the bridge and it'd all be done. But then like putting it all together as a co 
cohesive song played by those individual players. It's like, you know, I would offer oftentimes like, okay, we can use this rhythmic figure to take us from the chorus into the bridge. I love or, it. I love know, it. I love like, it. I love it. Yeah, that kind of just that sort of feedback. A lot of the time, you know, I have I have a decent understanding of harmonic and melodic concepts in music, but not really like enough to be like, hey man, I heard you play that, you know, B flat minor chord, and like maybe you could use this different voicing on it, and you know, use <laughs> no, but use but there's a they, but but you're but you're but you're above average, no doubt about it. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I definitely think that I know, I mean, I know, um, I, I guess, you know, I think I can, I trust my ear right? pretty good at right. this point, but, uh, you know, I'm always mindful of who I'm talking to because it's like, you can, you can communicate things like to somebody that, uh, just has like an innate understanding of their instrument and doesn't necessarily have like a, uh, like you know, a real um, theoretical knowledge of, like, their instrument, it's different, you know? It's just, like, they they don't want to talk about, like, you know, what voicing they're playing in, on a specific chord, you know? It's yeah. just more of, like, a, like, broader strokes sort of thing. And then I guess that's kind of where I, I, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's good to be able to adapt to different those different things like if somebody wants to get really specific and they want me to make a, a chart with a specific you know groove or specific fills or whatever the case like let's do that if they just want it to be like hey let's just improvise on this theme and like see what happens like that's cool too, you know. But I guess my point is, you have to know. No, I mean, this is this is opinion, the point. The point is, you're, you're no. I mean, in 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 completely uh, uh, Levian fashion. I mean, you're proving my point in the sense that um, I asked Ron Carter about it, but I, you know, I think rhythm sections can. You just explained it. Uh, you can you can increase musical vocabulary, not totally on your own. But you, by building those bridges or those rhythmic patterns, uh, you're taking simpler, broad, you know, I'm not, I don't know what the right word is, but you're taking more square tunes and you're able to stretch them to, so that they have a bridge and that they have, it can go on, it can go on longer and be interesting to those who are listening to it, which, I mean, that's what Tony Williams and, and Ron were doing. Um, obviously there were incredible melodic players like Wayne Shorter and, you know, and, you know, Miles and, you know, that, you know, that, but I, I, I mean, that's sort of like, I mean, well, my, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, yeah. but like you mentioned Miles, I mean, he's like one of the ultimate examples of a guy that knew everything about music, but he couldn't read a note. Exactly. You know, it's like, so what, so what good is, <laughs> like all of that uh like book knowledge if you can't really get like that was sort of rock alarms you know a, a few times he'd say to me like i you know i don't know what you're doing here in school learning how to play music <laughs> you should be out there 
Yeah, Rock alum. I can I mean he was he was really ribbing you man. He was going after you. I love it man. He's like you know, you don't get I, I think he was just kind of like you know, the authentic learning doesn't happen via um you know, books and but I don't know. I also kind of disagree with that in some sense because I think it's important to have Oh no, a hundred percent. I think I think I think it's unreal. I think I think Rock Lam, you know, the, the fact is he lived in Charles Mingus's apartment building. You know, he was playing vibes with these <laughs> yeah, guys. Right. You know, with J.C. Moses. I mean, that kind of loft scene that 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 didn't exist at at, at New England Conservatory. Are you kidding me? So it's like you no, know. Yeah, and that's, you're exactly right. That's totally where he's coming from, and that's like totally why he sees it that way. And like, you know, damn, if I was. If any of us are fortunate enough to live in the building with Mingus growing up and like get to actually jam with these cats and like hang with them because you know his dad was was involved with all of them, so it's like that's incredible. You know, if goddamn like if talk about authentic, you know, education, but at the same time, I think uh, I mean, what's authentic education without like an authentic desire from the student or the people to make authentic music <laughs> you know so then it's like if i don't know you can get the you get to be the best uh i don't know it's just how, there's a certain like it, all the stars have to align i think in order you know there's just a, a lot to to then you know at the end of the day you turn out a musician from this institution you know, and I guess specifically speaking of NEC, it's like they, I think, do an incredible job of offering a place where you can find your own way through the world of institutional music and come out retaining some of your own voice or your whole own voice and, and like, not uh, churning out, like, cookie-cutter players, you know, not which I think, you know, I'm not we don't have to talk about, you know, the state of music education. No, I mean, no, I mean, I, I mean, here's the thing. I I do want to tell you though. I mean, and this is, you know, this is, we are now completing set one of our interview. We got another full, we got to do a whole nother set, but, um, but, um, here's the thing about rock He was a really troubled cat. (laughs) I, 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 you know, I mean, I've interviewed, I mean, that my point is that uh, Levy. My yeah, point is that yeah. my point is that to live the blues or the jazz life, there it has to be this struggle. There has you have to, that's how you learn to tell your own story. And I, do you feel like you are? I mean, we know the struggles that it takes um, to be a, a touring musician or a professional musician. But um, do you? How do you feel like in your evolution? your story is is coming along because um <laughs> that part of rock part of rock alums um part part of his part of his journey has been to uh to to has been dealing with the madness of it you know yeah no doubt i mean i i guess so to answer the question like how do i feel about my journey uh uh through the you know through you know my path through the music journey 
Uh, I guess I feel like I haven't taken any shortcuts. <laughs> and uh, it makes me feel good that I do feel like what would, What would be an example of a shortcut? Well, here, first of all, also, I should say, I don't really think that any shortcuts were offered to me. <laughs> whether, whether no, it's not, fine, but I mean, I, I'm trying to get, like, I, no, I understand, you went the distance, but like... Um, <laughs> well, but, I'm still in the distance. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, long it's long-distance runner, yeah. I got a long way to go, <laughs> hopefully, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, But I guess, yeah, I'm... Well, I don't know if I had any examples of shortcuts. Well, you know, just just go with the, go guess, with the idea uh, of like of uh, you're talking about. We you know just briefly you said the state of music education and it's just the the dilemma is just an, a homogenization of sound. People are just coming out sounding like themselves, um, and you have to have real life experience to sing your song. So I just want to know like in your yeah. journey where you feel you're at in that point. Yeah. Well. Denver, Colorado, and, you know, I've, I, I was lucky to end up in a public school system that had really great attention to the arts, and, um, you know, that, that was a great, a great start, and then post all, you know, post uh, my public education, public school education, going to NEC, um, and then at post NEC and kind of during my, my summers and my breaks and stuff, like road dogging it around with my high school buddies um, in a funk band, you know, we were definitely, I feel like that, those years that I spent um, on the road in vans, gnarly drives, shitty gigs, no people listening. Sometimes people did listen and gave you encouragement and you know, it was like... I did? Oh, man, yeah. Like, I mean, that's, the, that's, it, was, that's it, it, man. So, so that's basically, I spent like 10 years or so between like that band of dudes from high school and then the Congress. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, obviously you're, you know, practicing, rehearsing, self-care, you know, especially as a drummer. I mean, I personally haven't experienced a lot of drummers talking about their like journey with their bodies. <laughs> and that's been, maybe we can talk about that next time or something, but that's been a super interesting part of the whole journey for me um, because it led me to yoga and mindfulness meditation. And then the intersection of those things with music, it was like, that is like, totally opened up a whole new realm of like living music because I started realizing, well, if my body isn't where it needs to be, then I'm not going to be able to play the way I need to or want to. And then it's like in the same respect, if your mind isn't where it should be, then how are you going to be able to play the music that it you know you you're capable of if you were in like a more centered place mentally uh, like a healthier place mentally and physically 
so that that sort of um, has in my later, you know, in the last like ten, I don't know, maybe five to ten. Yeah, years, no, so I t- I've been taking your focus. I've been taking your advice about. Um, I, I can't get to twenty minutes of Tai Chi though. You know, like I mean, yeah. you, twenty minutes of meditation—that's when you start to burn, you know. But I really—I yeah, yeah, exactly. mean, the whole thing is. All right, I'll let you jam. But um, uh, are you uh, are you are you off the road for a minute? I mean, we, we should finish this up. This is uh, this is good stuff. Yeah, yeah, man. Um, so yeah, this week I'm playing a bunch of gigs and uh, up here in Vail, and then on. Friday morning, actually, my girlfriend Corinne and I are going to Mexico for a week. To, rock uh, on, rock on. We're going to go see some music down there, do a little, uh, see some Panic and um, <laughs> North Mississippi All Stars and um, oh, that's fantastic. something else I think with Ivan Neville is going on or something. And then um, after that, we're going to take a little, like a couple more days, go and do a little. Uh, super chill vibe for my birthday on a on a beach but yeah so so, just, so uh, yeah let's let's like link back let's look back for yeah. yeah no cats no cats run until april so i'm told <laughs> all right yo because i'm gonna be up in keezy keezy country doing uh, chronicling uh the merry prankster uh uh next week so um cool whenever you go like uh in february let's uh yeah beginning i'm back beginning of february so we can totally link up all right dude much love have a ball be safe and have a ball thanks jake later yeah man much love keep it up thanks later dude peace part two with mark levy in the books we'll be back with mason williams tomorrow on the jake feinberg show it stands out on a highway like a from another time It inspires the baby's questions What's that? For their mothers as they ride But no one stopped to think about the babies Or how they would survive We've almost lost Detroit this time. How would we ever get over losing our mind? Just. Miles from Detroit stands a giant power station. It ticks each night as the city sleeps. Seconds from annihilation.
No one stopped to think about the people or how they would survive. And we almost lost Detroit this time. Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show, company on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live, so you can download our free app and stream all of our live local programming, including the Jake Feinberg Show. And um, can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. And, and uh, on a serious note, it's great to uh, con- reconnect with a cat who's been a vibrational healer for me uh in the last uh you know several months uh, and years to come mark levy welcome back to the program man hey man thank you so much for having me back yeah no you're it's an honor i mean um can you talk about do you um can you talk about like um where you would like to see uh circles go uh in the future, what kind of potential the band has, you think, as far as, um, uh, I don't know, stretching the music? Or do you think it, and do you think it'll ever have uh, any kind of vocal or um, uh, attachment? Mm, cool, yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll start backwards um, with that question and say that, you know, Neil Casal 
is an incredible singer. I mean, he's got like, dude has pipes. You know, he's like released 10 or 11 solo records where he's singing every song. Mark Levy there. We're going to have to call him right back on the Jake Feinberg show. Let's call. Man. Yo, yo, um, you were riffing. First of all, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, basically, he had this whole career that it goes completely unnoticed. It's interesting that because um, he's an ama- Neil's an amazing singer. Like he's really an amazing, yeah. amazing singer. Yeah, really. Um... It's just, it, was, it was so classic about Cass is that there's no no vocals. I mean, I got to be honest. I, I to me that's just fine, you know. But it's just interesting. <laughs> Be interesting uh, to have Neil do those twelve albums now, as opposed to before. Uh, who knows? I just it's 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 funny the way life works out. Yeah, right? yeah for sure, for sure it is. I, I think you know that being said, obviously the in the CRB Neil is a huge vocal presence, um, singing harmonies with Chris and Adam also sings a lot. Um, so, you know, and I've in the past, like when I was playing with the Congress, I was singing a lot with those guys and I love to sing. Um, my whole life I've always kind of gotten a lot of enjoyment out of feeling my, uh, you know, like my chest cavity, my vocal cords resonating with the people around me, you know, singing harmonies. One of my favorite things uh, at NEC that I had no idea I would you know get into was in the solfege class we would sing these Bach um, like sonatas oh man that's going were. deep man um, that's in the deep that's the yeah, deep like bag man four part harmonies so that's like how, how the teacher would really get us to be able to read in different clefs and know what we were mm-hmm looking at solfege is difficult and that's that was really that was really a challenge but you know i think any serious musician should should probably check it out <laughs> you know for better or worse you can't be can't be that bad but um anyway you know i think um there's definitely potential for cats to have some sort of vocal presence but i would highly doubt that it would involve any um, like substantial lyrical content. For example, <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, no, let's let dig, I mean, let's go dig a little bit. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean that if there was going to be vocalizing going on, I don't think it would uh, entail words. Okay, I'm sorry. Or you know, uh, I think it would just be sort of like a another timbre, another. You know, another voice added in. You're, the... you're talking like ding, 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 ding. Like you're talking about like raga. Like, yeah. sing, I mean, I mean, are you? Uh, it would be. Would it be actual like, 
Would it be part of the sonic palette, or would it actually would there be well, any message, or you know, the clear? That's what, that's what I I don't I think I don't. This is all totally hypothetical. Oh yeah, of in course. My, that's the fun part. You know, obviously, yeah. But in my in my mind, I think that the place that vocals could have in circles around the sun would be to add another layer of tonality to the you know to the tapestry. And um, for example, the band Krongbin, um, who I actually got to see live for the first time last week. They played in Vail, hmm. um, a big outdoor nighttime show in the winter. You know, all these. It was actually really beautiful. It was snowing and um, <laughs> like it's it was, that every day. Was, That's the every day of your life, Levy. Every day. <laughs> it, it's been an incredible season uh, in Colorado yeah. in terms of the snow, and incredibly crazy for people too traveling uh, on the I seventy corridor between Vail and Denver has been wild, man. Like. The road closed almost every day, multiple times a day for for about two weeks. That's unprecedented. Of, um, I wouldn't say unprecedented. You know, when they there's been a lot of big years like that, but it's um, definitely been a while since avalanches have poured out onto the interstate um, like they have been these past couple of weeks. Nobody's gotten hurt or stuck or anything, luckily. You know, but it's just massive amounts of snow load that uh you know it's gotta it's gotta move somewhere gravity doesn't stop doing its thing so yeah i just had i just had a bolt of inspiration though i just i wanted to run this i wanted to run this by you and that is you know because like you said there are three-part harmonies going on in the crb and maybe it's incumbent upon your past singing in Congress to be the, the, the lead vocalist in Cats. You being the lead vocalist. <laughs> Man, <laughs> As a drummer, I mean, to me, that is not easy to do. That's not easy to do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, you know what? I don't really know where the vocals, um, if ever, will will come into the Cats world, but like I was mentioning before I got hypnotized by the thought of snow uh, <laughs> they use their vocals um, three of them and they're all singing these three part harmonies but it's stuff like you know they're going ah, or like Shh, and making sounds more so even sometimes wow. when they're really creating tones with wow. their voices but I think it's so cool they're just adding another layer of depth to their sound. And that, I guess, is where I would see, you know, that sort of approach is what I would possibly see happening in Cats. Because, honestly, I think anything other than that, it would sort of take away from what the project really is at at its root, you know? It started out as an instrumental um you know, back of back of the room sort of sound like background music sort of vibe, but also um, well, I think it played in the same spirit as the Grateful Dead, but not not like the Grateful Dead, but played in the same spirit. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that was literally the assignment, right. you know, right. from from Justin and I, you know, I. Um, but yeah, I think that's a good question that, as far as the vocal thing goes because yeah, obviously 
you know, we're all packing vocal cords. And you know, I mean, come on! I saw Horn front and center singing "Don't Let Go" at the at the Brooklyn Bowl. I'm like, dude! I mean, out of all the projects, I'm like, I, I Cats is my favorite band, man. I mean, it's like you know, and as far as I'm concerned, oh, like, man, thank you. Well, no, dude. I mean, it's just I and I and uh, I just wanted you to talk about is like how does um in your mind how does somebody it's very hard on the electric bass to create your own intonation uh, more so than like the string bass, which is more discernible, like who it is. And like, but Dan Horn has like a discernible sound on the electric bass. And um, I'm curious about how he, um, well, like what it's like playing with him in that setting, because you have to, I mean, night after night, when you guys are on tour, I mean, you have to be getting, you have to figure out ways to get off yourself. So you're not, you, you have to figure out ways of reinventing things, or like you said before, you know, adding depth to the music, you know. And I just wonder how you do that with, uh, with Horn. Yeah, man. The inspiration comes easily um, playing with not only Dan, but, you know, Neil and Adam. Um, provide so much musically and just um, in, in general I think the approach with Circles Around the Sun being very in the moment um, always trying to you know uh, take care of that ball of energy as we pass it around or just let it sort of dance there in the middle of the band you know um that lends itself to just constant inspiration. It's sort of like the, you know, it's always now mentality. Um, we just applying that to life. I, I, there's a lot of proponents of mindful living and that, you know, that say that's the key to happiness. It's just being present, not getting carried away by, you know, your worries of the future, your regrets of the past, whatever it may be. So Absolutely. Dan is, you know, Dan is very much a, a kind of player that's very in the moment and he's not afraid to take chances and just be very real with what he's doing. And he's, he's really fun to watch too. He's very engaging um, visually because he's so into what he's doing and, and he's not faking it. You know, he's, it's not, you know, sometimes you watch somebody and they're like, excessive movement or like something is weird and it's sort of like blocking you from really well they're, they're it's like a gimmick you know it's like a gimmick yeah you, totally yeah i guess that's what that's that's what you'd call it yeah, right because right, they, like, they, they don't yeah but i mean that's the cool thing is like you and, and horn are very animated in your in your like in your engagement with the apparatus you know well i think I think that for me, it's always come down to the, um, you know, drumming is a, is a physical activity and, uh, all of the, you know, I, I've seen drummers that manage to not move very much and sound incredible and, um, and, you know, high energy and it's amazing. Um, and I've also seen drummers that are the exact opposite, like, you know, Bonham, is an amazing example of just this like thunder of <laughs> movement and like you know crazy yeah, energy. Right. Yeah. and um 
Elvin is kind of like that too, just like so much movement. And I've always, that's kind of resonated with me um, in terms of a direct translation of, you know, I'm really feeling this. So there's all this other <laughs> movement going on. And there's, I'm sure there's probably people out there that'd be like, oh man, you're being so inefficient with your movement and um, tone production. But I don't know. I guess it is what it is. Again, in the moment, um, and Dan, I, I don't know. There's something about he plays that alembic bass that sounds amazing. Yeah, um, right, it's always, right. It's never not sounded amazing. And whether we've been in the studio or at every live show we've ever played, and you know, we're the kind of band that we travel around with gear. Um, I think more than some because the quality of the tone is really important to us. Um, so I always, you know, I always go with my cymbals, my snare drum, and it's, you know, I do not travel light, um, but I can't travel with a whole drum kit, you know, so we get, we have to play all sorts of different <laughs> backline drum kits along the way, but, you know, Adam travels with his Moog, Neil, obviously, his guitar, and Dan, his guitar, and whenever possible, everybody's playing their own amps. And Adam's playing his whole keyboard rig, and you know it's because tone is important, and also um, it's hard to get inspired on an instrument that sounds and feels like crap. That that <laughs> you know? that actually is an incredibly astute point. I mean, I didn't really think about the whole idea of you know. <laughs> being unable I mean if it's one thing if it's like the instruments don't arrive and it's a fluke thing and you know it's kind of fun for everybody because they're playing something uh, just give me one second Levy hold on one second brother yeah 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 cool Actually, this is the, the the truth of the matter is that um, you know we we lost it. Um, well, anyway, I want to put this this audio clip in for you, Levy, and um, have you listen to it. It's a little bit winding, but we'll come back and extrapolate on it. Okay. You know, we played. He was the epitome of a rock and roll surfer boy with the blonde hair. And the girls were nuts about him, probably more crazy about him than anyone in the Beach Boys. And yet I was doing the Beach Boys records. <laughs> I mean, it was an amazing thing. And they, and they were all good friends. Right. And they, they loved that I was doing the records because aside from the fact that we knew they were, were going to be hits, I mean, it's obviously. Oh, my. Uh, Dennis, uh, Dennis and I were very dear friends, and they asked him many times, doesn't it upset you that Al was doing records? And he'd say, no, because Dennis was out on his boat, his motorcycle, his hot rods, his surfboard. He was the epitome of a surfer. And we loved the fact that he could do what he wanted, and I've said it many times. While I was in the studio making 35, 40 hours in the afternoon, Dennis that night was on stage making, who knows, 30,000 
That is a very, very... Yeah, so the overarching philosophical point there is really powerful, Hal. That's incredible. Well, it's, it's, you know, it's absolutely true. And, yeah. and, you know, the people that helped me when I was coming along as a youngster, and, and, and now I'm, you know, I helped Jimmy Keltner, I helped Jimmy Gordon, all these folks that were coming along uh, next to me or behind me or in front of me, uh, they all became very dear friends, and I was very happy to help them just as Ezra Palmer helped me. And H.B. Barnum, one of the great arrangers, um, who's not that well known, but he was one of the incredible guys that came along in the, during the late 50s and uh, grabbed hold of me and put me with people like Sam Cooke. And, you know, here I was the only white guy working with Sam Cooke. And, and, and when somebody would ask, how come we're using a white guy, H.B. Barnum would say, you better listen to this white guy because this is where it's at. <laughs> One of the great things that ever happened to me, I was in a, on a, not in a movie, but I was working on a soundtrack at Universal one day. And I didn't know who the producer was. And Universal was one of the few studios, talk about cheap guys. They never wanted to pay the proper monies, on and on and on and on. But I always did because it was all union. But... The producers that, uh, one of the things that happened was that most drummers, guitarists, pianists, they had cartridge companies that delivered their instruments. But except for Universal, they had a room in the back room of the studio with every conceivable instrument. Mm -hmm. So when you came, I mean, in my case, I was using my, my monster set that I designed they had to accept that. So, that, you know, I had a drum tech that was doing all this work for me. He was always one set in front of me, one set behind me with a particular setup, knowing what I would be doing, whether it was a movie, a television, a pilot, a, a recording, whatever it was. And in this case, this producer, and we were always behind barriers, the drummer, they had a booth called the Shelly Man booth so that the drums, the leakage wasn't too bad mm -hmm. when they were doing what they're doing. And now the percussionists were behind, it looked like the Great Wall of China. We were behind <laughs> all these barriers so that we didn't leak into the orchestra in front of us. And at one point, the producer came and he came back to talk to me, and he said, he said, look, uh, drummer, there's a scene coming up, and these people are in downtown uh, India somewhere. Uh, it wasn't Bangkok. Oh, God, what was New Delhi or... New Delhi or... or uh, one of those. Yeah, right. One of those New Delhis. And I told him, <laughs> as a matter of fact, I used the old joke that I was using, you know, have you been to that New Delhi in New Delhi? <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Had a boom. So he said, right. he said listen, drummer, well, well, there's a scene coming up where these people are on, and we're on, they were on like, not camels, but the thing that the, the Japanese and the Chinese used to do, they'd run with people behind them in a two-wheel thing. Oh, yeah. So the guy said, there's a guy and a girl, and they're going to be in this, uh, 
pushcart thing that you're pulling, and uh, we're going to do some music of India. So be sure that you have some of those Indian drums. I said, okay. And we were on a break or whatever, and I went into the music room, and that's the one thing they did not have, tablas. There were no tablas. So what did I do? Because of my past experiences, I took a big kind of a um, handkerchief and put it over my small tom-tom. I loosened the head a little bit, and I just got kind of a thuddy sound. And then I could raise, I could raise the handkerchief at times and hit the drum with a dirt, dirt. And here I'm hitting it, and I'm using my fingers and one stick, and I'm playing all this what I thought was Indian music while the band was playing what they were playing. And when we finished the scene, it was one take. And when we finished the scene, the producer said, don't leave the drums, I have to talk to you. So I thought, oh, Jesus, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I must have really screwed up. And this guy came running out and he said, he said, Hal, he knew my name. He said, and because he was calling me drummer, he said, Hal, that's the best tabla work I've ever heard. He talk about. Well, I'm sorry you had to sit through that whole thing. Do you know who that is? Hal Blaine. Mark Levy, dude. I feel blessed to have, as we, you know, I feel so blessed to be able to play Hal Blaine on, on your interview, man. Rest in peace. Oh, I mean, I mean, seriously, like, I, I. Yeah, what a monster. Which, I mean, like, what did you, what did you, when did he come on your radar? With, I mean, I never even saw the Wrecking Crew documentary. I, I decided to go out and interview him myself. I just am curious about, like, like, he did Simon and Garfunkel. He changed music, man. The Birds. Toys, dude. Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra. Like, right. He's a, he's a, yeah, I don't know. I was, I was just reading, um, you know, one of the, one of the pieces that came out since he died. Um, let's see what it was. He was on 40 number one singles and 150 that made the top 10. <laughs> that is unbelievable. Right. Unbelievable. You know, and like his family, their statement, you know, may he forever, or may he rest forever on two and four. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, because yeah, earlier I that was, I, yeah, I want that on my tombstone. Because you know, no, that's what he, what he, he earlier in the inner in our interview that was from my uh, my interview with him from September 2014, and he he was like, uh, he's like the problem with jazz, and, and he's even going back to when he was playing jazz uh, it, when it was popular music. He said, you know, all these really uptight white people would come they'd order one drink and they'd clap on one and three <laughs> he was I mean it was it was funny but you know I mean a lot of it was like I mean I actually wanted to ask you there were several things that reasons I played that clip um, what he was talking about early on I'm always fascinated by this because part of the reason that I started my journey was being able to recognize on the albums the back covers who was playing on them 
okay, the accompanists. Okay, but that was really not prevalent for a long time. Like, Brian Wilson would get credit for playing drums on Beach Boys records, but Hal Blaine was playing the drums. Brian Wilson was out surfing and, you know, skate, whatever he was doing. I mean, not doubting his talent, but the point is I said, how, how did you not get insecure or upset about the fact that, that, you know, you weren't getting a company as credit. You would hear the song on the radio um, and someone else was getting credit for it, you know? And, and he, he said, you know what? He goes, uh, it was, our philosophy was president of the record company. We're going to take our money and run. We saw ourselves moving up in society. We saw ourselves buying nice homes, um, yachts, uh, that, and then most importantly, being respected and accepted as real musicians. He's talking about the Wrecking Crew. And I just yeah. wonder, like, in today, I mean, that musical paradigm doesn't exist today. So there's no way for you right. to extrapolate on that. But, I mean, in today's world, if you got paid for a session, I mean, maybe it's happened to you, but, like, you know, you can break it down. But, like, I know that uh, my as a Gen Xer, if I played drums on a major album, I'd want to make sure I was getting credit for it. And I, I wonder if that still exists today, like where you go in and ghost ghost apart for someone who just takes full credit for the album. Because that that was a revelation to me. He was he was good. For, actually, Brian Wilson crashed on his couch. He said that was a whole story in and of itself. How Blaine's, you know, the whole thing's insane. I just want to get your take on that sort of, that quality where it's like, well, you know what? We saw, we were, we were moving on up, man. It's the Jeffersons, man. We were moving on up. I, I read, I did read something in, in that article. Um, you know, somebody asked him about being the unsung hero or one of the unsung heroes of, you know, the pop rock world. And he's like, you know, I don't, he's like, I don't see anything wrong with it. I was laughing all the way to the bank. You know, <laughs> yeah, right. Like, yeah. Made a couple million bucks, like no problem here. You know, it's like, so I don't. I don't really know. I mean, I think you, the music industry, the music business is, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, pretty cutthroat at times, but also, you know, it's governed by a set of rules that most everybody is playing by. So, um, I tend to think that if I don't know, ghosting a part or something like like you said, but I definitely. Um, I'm sure, you know, there are plenty of recordings that I'm on that aren't even labeled. Or, you know, that, <laughs> but I mean, like, but this official, is back, like, you know, early official releases or right, anything like that. Right. You know, so it's kind of a different. I don't know, but um, I mean, it wasn't. You know, everybody's yeah. going surfing. That's making. You know, I mean, I think the the other thing is, dude, the budgets. I mean. Levy, if you were in this, yeah. you would have been marinating in the studio scene. The budgets were insane. I mean, he'd go in, he guys like Emil Richards and those cats. I mean, they'd get doubles for playing mallets and then hand drums and 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 I mean, you could double flute with oboe and French or whatever. I mean, I mean, there was money. I guess what I'm saying is the way a musician was viewed by society was a profession. Like there was money right, to yeah. pay these cats right. to do their craft. That I mean, it just well, crystallized well, listening to that. You know, it's like Blaine was laughing all the way to the bank, and I guess at some point yeah. the bean counters came in, and they're like, "Now we're just gonna slash this." I mean, now it's just like you said, it's cutthroat now, 
And it was competitive before, but everybody, there were like three or four, like, I mean, it was definitely competitive, but you could find your way when the studio scene was thriving. You know I mean? I just, it's, it's pain. It pains me that, that cats like yourself don't have opportunities to like, just to be doing jingles and like that, that to me is, you know, is uh, like on a consistent basis. Well, yeah, I mean, that. there's a drummer up here that plays in Vail every week, um, lives down in Aspen. His name is John Michelle. Amazing, amazing drummer. He played with John Oates' band for like 20 years. Right. And before that was a studio session musician and toured a shitload. But it was, you know, he was telling me about days when he'd, he'd be in the studio all day and he'd make two grand in right. a day. Right. And he's and that's in like the like early '90s or the '80s or maybe it was even earlier than that. I I, I honestly don't remember that when he's telling me the story, but I was blown away by that. You know, it's like uh, it's a totally different it's a totally different world. But also, if I was trying to get into music for the money, I would have gotten out of music a long time ago. <laughs> And yeah, well, um, and no, that's what I know, want. You know so, what? The, yeah, the, go ahead. Go, go ahead. Well, I, I'm just, I'm just saying, like, you know, there's um, many ways to find your way through a life in music, um, but there's, you know, there's no guarantees that you know, anything. There are just no guarantees, um, and I actually knew that. I sensed that and made a choice early on when I was in high school that I wanted to take, you know, what I perceived as the road less traveled. Um, I wasn't going to take my, you know, I, I did, I did well in high school and, you know, I was in band and did all the extracurriculars and, you know, like I could have gone to, I could have gone to a lot of different, schools and done a lot of different things um and was considering like law and medicine and those kind of traditional i'm gonna go work my ass off for 10 years in school and come out and you know pay off a mountain of debt but eventually have myself a three-car garage and you know <laughs> maybe a couple of houses and a few cars or whatever that, is I, that something that's something that you you aspired for at, at a period of time or you thought that or you're well, you being pressured to do that or you really didn't want you were into that i think that society pressures us to do that's that. right no i dig totally and 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 uh i made a choice you know in high school to be like well that's all fine i have nothing <laughs> i'm not judging people that you know strive to attain those things in their life that's comfort those are those are creature comforts and you know, whatever, it's all good. Everybody should do uh, what they <laughs> hope to make them happy. And um, I just thought, hey, I really love making music and playing drums and, you know, relating to people musically and also energy exchange rather than, it wasn't about the money, it was about something that just felt so much more pure and direct and it's like then I figured well if I can do that then that's cool because no matter what else happens at least there's this and it's something so real 
that's um, you know so fulfilling, then if I happen to be able to make a living, uh, and you know even like going back to what what you were saying about <laughs> musicians back then being viewed as like real professionals, uh, professionals. Yeah, I mean today it's like people are like, oh, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a musician. They're like, oh. What else do you do? It, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. You're like, like or or yeah, the, yeah. They'll say, "Is that your full time gig?" It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah, exactly. That's always like the next question. It's like, well, and then if you tell them like, yeah, you know, it is. They're like, wow, you know, it's like, well, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, then you're like a deity because they're like, how do you do it? You know. <laughs> well, and like you know, I have so much respect for. Uh, it is. It is a difficult. Well, I don't. I shouldn't say difficult. It's a an interesting lifestyle to, you know, every musician, um, unless they're just solely a studio guy or um, you know solely a teacher. But I mean, I would say a vast majority of musicians travel um, at some point during the year. You know, they'll be, you know, it's just part of part of what we do and that comes along with a lot of other you know effects on our personal and you know our professional lives and it's all it's a it's a full life gig it's not like a full time gig it's just like it is living like Rockalon would say living music and that's like doing the dishes in rhythm <laughs> where Folding the laundry. Rock along, dude. Weird, Jesus, like, dude. I, know, I mean, whatever. dude, he's, he's everywhere, dude. I was just out in Inglewood hanging. I did a Facebook Live with Billy Martin, man. The guy is such a great cool. freaking cat, man. You know, and I, I, I just, I mean, yeah, how, cool. like, um, I want to read you this quote. It was inspiring. Uh, and I just wanted you to um, talk about it. And any, as it relates to, um, to, uh, you know, just you're playing in any context. You know, this was someone asked a question to Billy Kreutzman and said, What in musician influenced you most? And he said, Elvin Jones. He said, I couldn't steal a lick from that man and I wouldn't want to. But what he taught me is freedom total freedom of expression. That it's legal to do anything you can think of. <laughs> and I and I want you yeah, to man. I want you to talk about freedom. It is, man. Because he, he acknowledges it's not like he's, I mean, you listen to the dead and it's like, you know, frenetic, you know, like psychedelic, you know, white uh, Coltrane music sometimes, you know? And, you know, like, like that's Billy's version of Elvin, you know? That's total freedom. And I just want you to talk about that freedom, you know, knowing that you can't necessarily, and you wouldn't even want to duplicate or steal a lick from somebody, but who has influenced you in a profound way where they taught you like you can stretch anything that that's legal. Well, can I just ask first, where was that quote from? When do you say that? This was a stealth article in Elmore magazine. I'll send it. I'll text it to you. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. That's, that is a really cool quote. Cause I also, um, I, I don't know. I can, I can so relate 
that. Okay, so just riff on that. I want to hear that. I want you to relate to it because to, to me, I was like, that's the greatest quote I've ever. I mean, there's nobody I listen to more than Billy Kreutzman, and it's like, I know he's not Elvin Jones. He just encapsulated it. You know, it's funny. Yeah, it's so cool because I, I've 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 been in his shoes listening to Elvin and being like, what the <laughs> fuck is that? How is that happening? Right. You know, what is he? How is he creating that sound on the instrument? Um, and it is, it's perfect just for that because I, I let go of the analytical part of my brain, which is trying to figure out what the sticking pattern was that he played and how, you know, but just experience it and then let that move through your own filter and then come out as whatever it is. You know, that's like the evolution of a thought. Well, I think that's what you were talking about before. That's what makes it so real. That's what makes the whole experience so real. Totally. Not trying to be anything really, but just trying to speak. Just try, in the moment, outside of yourself, out of your own ego, like just not overthinking. And then after three hours, you're like, you know, either you know that, you know, it was kind of uneven or you know that it was kind of good or it was totally euphoric. I mean, I, you know, that's like, um, and then, you know, throwing whatever, you know, sort of, uh, you know, things, elevated substances you might need or, you know, like, I mean, those guys, I, don't, I, I just, I just like, you know, I mean, I... I wonder if you feel like, um, I mean, that there's a difference between what what is the line between total freedom and then be, like being a wanker? You know what I'm trying to say? Like where it goes too oh, far. Man. Like well, I don't I don't as a musician I just if you could, you know, what's the line there? You know, because like Billy wasn't Billy wasn't a I mean Mickey they were not obnoxious drummers. I mean, no. I, you know, they weren't, they weren't, they never wanked it up there. I don't, I know nobody in the band was really, sometimes Bobby would wank it on the slide, you know, just showing off because he thought he was really good. But it's like, those just, I mean, what's the line there as a musician between taking it, going as far, you know, we're seeing it in politics now, it, you know, the idea like you, how far can you go before something is completely bona fide illegal? You know, and in music and in rhythm, how far? Or just yeah, yeah, or just bona fide tasteless. It's just like no morality. Like how far can it go towards right. no? Like how far? How much are we willing to accept? And well, and in music, what's yeah. the? What, I mean, have you? Not that you've had a deal with that, but obviously you see people that are immensely talented, and they. Um, you know, and and they have a lot of charisma and they have a lot of passion, but they can't get out of their own way musically. You know. Oh man, I know. I've I've seen it. I guess the answer to your question would be: I think you. There is no answer. Then, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I, yeah. I, there really. I mean, honestly, that's it. There is no answer. <laughs> there is no like clear answer. I think you just sense it, and then and then you start wading into the territory of you know, subjective opinion uh, about mm. art. Mm. 
because really, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's a matter of taste. Um, that would be an important building block in, in getting your own answer. Um, because I, I don't know. I've, I've seen people where I just feel like I'm being tricked into thinking something <laughs> or, and then I'll see people where I am just instantly transported into a world of, you know, in a, in a different place. Right. A different uh, portal. Yeah. Right. There's like a transcending quality. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. To the sound where I think maybe that is what I mean by you. You'll sense it. Like if, I guess you know it when you see it, uh, it has that trans transcendent quality, um, sort of like a high, you know, a high vibrations ability to cut through a low fog, that sort of clarity. Um, but as far as what that is or where the line is, man, I think it's a moving scale and it depends on what angle you're looking at it from, you know, and who, who you are and what your experience leads you to, to want. Because, uh, you know, I personally don't put on metal when I'm driving around in my car just uh or you know when i'm when i'm hiking or, or whatever but there's millions of people that do yeah and that's cool you know and that's totally cool but they're coming from a totally different angle and their you know their experience has led them to that place and it's totally valid so i don't vibration I don't okay but I, no i'm with you dude a hundred percent like like because you know the different the thing is that we can we don't have to listen to it so vibrationally, I'm not trying to judge those cats in any way, shape, or form because I just try to look at humanity as one big, broad, one big, broad, beautiful thing. But um, and it's hard to do. But I'm just saying, like, if you were super tight with that person and they only wanted to listen to metal, could you really handle that in the car every day if you didn't have a car? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess. If you loved them enough, I'm just saying like vibration, it's a vibrational thing, man. The music has taught me about vibrations. So it would be hard. I think just on a, I think anybody's in type. Yeah. I'm just feeling anybody's thought for you on that though. There is only one vibration. Right. Uh, Many frequencies. Frequencies. Thank you. There you go. Within that vibration. And I, I do. I believe that, that that's something that was pointed out to me recently. I really appreciate it. Um, <laughs> as a, sort of conceptually, it makes the it makes it makes the whole thing a little bit more. Um, I don't know. Seems more real to me thinking of it like that. You know what I mean? Like everything is vibration. It's all just everything is moving. You know, literally down to the atoms within. I mean, you know the ice out there is moving a lot slower than the water uh, and you know in this glass right here but still everything is moving um so the the frequency in which we relate to each other is definitely i think that's what leads us to each other or kind of keeps us you know moving in our own spaces or whatever it is um I definitely think that 
we only are working inside of this, you know, inside of the construct. And um, musically, that's that can be, you know, working inside of this, like, this is what I feel, so I'm going to play this thrashing metal lick, or I'm going to play this really sweet, meditative, you know, shakuhachi flute. <laughs> right. Or You can play that? Anything you got to play that more. No, God damn it, I wish. I <laughs> some, some cats can play that. I mean, that's just Bill Summers, man, the headhunters, unreal. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, man, so, I, yeah, that's... Um, no, I dig, I dig. But that's that's cool. I, I appreciate the that Coitman quote, and he's also, you know, like a fearless train driver. Um that sometimes like the tracks would go, you know, into outer space and it's incredible, but still it's his drumming was so is always so supportive and it's always like very I always I feel that I've always felt that energetically, uh, the movement in his drumming is really just always feels amazing. You know, it's always like wherever we're going <laughs> It, it's going to be fine. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, and I could not have articulated. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, I, I don't, um, it, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's sort of revelate. It's, it, it's hard for me to even put into words because um, they do go into the intergalactic, um, you know, and, and, and uh, I mean, he's argue he's not playing with, you know, Phil Lesh literally, um, the one side project that Phil had uh, that was called Too Loose to Truck back in the mid-70s, they used to joke with him and say, Phil, we really need a bass player in this band. Because Phil was just so, <laughs> Phil was just soloing like crazy. And so somehow to fit in, somehow to lock, because to, you know what, it, it would be so easy for that to sound like a total mess. And, it, and it's always together. You know, whether it's a ballad, uh, you know, it's just it, it, whether it's, you know, just some odd time thing, you know, and I guess that's like, I mean, I I don't know if I, I, you know, it's just every time it's like I'm leaving this planet with with Mark Levy, like I, I, I forget about what we talked about before, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if I asked you before about the the thing that you could talk about that you learn most um, in school that you can translate when you're on the road with any myriad of, or just on the bandstand with, with any band, what, what, what is the most ap- practical application that you can transfer over? Oh, wow. Um, m- musically or anything because the yeah. mental part of it's just as hard. Being easy to work with, being easy to be around, being an easy traveler, uh, being an easy eater, <laughs> you know, being, um, and it's hard. And I was not that way. But, you know, you can ask, like, the dudes in the, like, the dudes I was in high school with, and then we, like, toured around in a minivan for, for a summer, like, that shit, there's nothing easy about that from anybody. <laughs> Nobody was being easy, you know? I mean, we were having a good time. 
and we were, we were, you know, we were playing music that was fun. You know, I look back on those days as an important part of just my learning, <laughs> learning process. And that was kind of like the school of. What was the name of that band? Of like the. Oh, that band was called Frogs Gone Fishing. Wow. <laughs> Which I, man, I like. They'll also tell you I protested that band name. Like, yeah, I mean, it's now. it's a I little. Was, it's gonna take me a minute to get my head around that name. I mean, that's, <laughs> I know, I know, it's uh, it's it's crazy. I mean, either yeah, way, yeah, but yeah, no, no, I, the but the this is so important, man. Yeah. I mean, that that it's just you had to learn how to keep your sanity and get along and be, a, a, a you know, yeah. a, a tolerable yeah, human being, and that that's a a good that's road test. Well, so, and what I learned in school was how to be professional professional vibe within this sort of uh you know there's a lot of i don't know there's always a lot of people um they're operating in different different levels of professionalism that's right in the music industry and i've always found that um you know the cats like I, uh, like Todd Smalley, the bass player, I get to play with him a lot. Um, he lives here in Colorado when he's not playing with JJ Gray and Mofro. And before that, you know, he's been with JJ for like eight or nine years or something like that already. And they're, you know, they're really doing well out there. Um, before that, he spent like 16 or 17 years with their trucks band. Wow. Um, and Todd is, you know, he's just like consummate human being, professional um, in the sense that he's just always, he's always got a smile on his face. He's always, uh, you know, regard, you know, he's got a busy life at home. He's got two kids that are like, you know, in their teens now, and he's got a, you know, his wife. Um, right. Always, and, it's always hard to balance all that stuff, man. And play yeah, music. And, and he's like, and he's touring constantly, and then when he's home, he comes up to Vail and he plays these gigs, and he's always just like, man, he's just always contributing to the vibe in a positive way. Um, and wow, that makes that is him unreal. incredibly, incredibly valuable person to call to get on your gig. Because you know that if you call, if you call Smalley, he's going to show up, he's going to have a great vibe, he's a crushing bass player, and like you know, he's he's not he's not getting messed up on the gig. He's not showing up messed up. He's not getting messed up after the gig, making a fool or anything like that. Because any of that kind of stuff is it. That's it. That's like then you know it, you're you're done. Like you no, know, that can be enough for people not to ever give you a call. And some of the most badass players I've met in my life also unfortunately happen to be socially you know kind of inept and not really that great to be around and you know what those dudes sit at home while people that are you know working their ass off to share their instrument but also have a great approach just in terms of you know like I've heard people call it van vibe <laughs> or like bus hang or like whatever. It's like, there's always, you know what, 
what people mean if it's like yeah you know the van vibe was just not good so <laughs> we had you know he didn't really last or, or whatever you know happens all the time mm. so i guess that's what that's what i learned that's one that was the most practical lesson that i learned at the and that was just so, by somebody day. i mean but was that through like um your well, your, your professor's telling you yo levy play the role play the part be, you know you know play the role, follow the muse and be yourself, but be professional. Or was it like this when you had rehearsals or concerts or, or festivals, like they'd be like, you know, show up on time. Don't be fucked up. I mean, that, how did you learn it? I think it was mostly just positive reinforcement. Right. Like right. I was doing those things. Right. Like, ah. yeah, good job. Come up with an example. You have an example. Keep doing that. Uh, I mean, you know, I guess there's like countless examples in like in like high school. Um, you know, like there every in every stage of my musical existence, I can think of times when I felt the positive reinforcement of just like, hey, thanks for being here on time. Thanks for being so prepared. I mean, or like whatever, you know, I guess the most recent example that I can think of is, you know, I'm out there with, um, the Chris Robinson brotherhood and I'm just like shedding my ass off, um, trying to learn all the songs and all the arrangements and, you know, then a couple weeks into the tour, it's really good for Chris to be like, Hey man, you are crushing it. You know, like you're doing a great job out here thank you so much you know like just that sort of a you know if I, if I wasn't taking the professionalism of that situation seriously I probably wouldn't have been burning midnight oil making my charts or listening um, constantly you know just really immersing myself in hmm. that gig because that was the that was like the task at hand and you know, I'm the kind of person that I love having something to do because um, <laughs> it's like so clear. Like here it is. I got. I, I'm just gonna. I'm gonna execute this <laughs> task. You know, I'm gonna crush this opportunity. Um, or you know, whatever it is. Did did even, you? Even did, I mean, did you? Did you? Were you still work? Were you still shedding? Like I'm just this is just coming from a non-musician. I mean, during the tour itself, were you like could Chris see you putting in? Like, were you still working on the tunes, or you had that stuff kind of put together by the time the tour hit? And... Oh, dude, no way, a hundred percent working every hour of every day. Oh my god, dude! So he was like, was he not... he put you through boot camp, and he's like, yeah, you're doing the you're the man, dude. I love that. Well, so it was like, here's, here's the thing. I got the call two weeks before. They're like, hey, man, <laughs> we might need you to step in oh for a big run coming up here. Um, and it's like, whoa, you know, okay, let me <laughs> look at my calendar. <laughs> let me clear my calendar. Yeah, let me clear it right and off. Then, and then you're like, oh, my God, how many uh, tunes, dude? And then and then I get hooked up with Raven, their monitor engineer and archivist, and he sends me all these Dropbox links to like their whole European tour. So I'm like compiling a list of songs 
songs and it's like a playlist made out of their live shows. Um, no repeated songs. And I like, you know, so I just went through the, the set list of like every night on that whole tour and then basically made a master list. So like, you know, I'd pick the songs out of each set list and then put it on a master list with no repeat. So that playlist ended up being nine hours long on when I put it all into <laughs> Apple Music and turned it into a playlist. So it was like nine hours of music that I'm sort of marinating on for oh the first week God. after I got the call. And then a week before the first gig, um, CR sent out the set list. Like the two, you know, it's always two sets with them. Right. Always an evening with. So, so I had about 20 songs. I'd narrow, I could narrow down that list of like 90 or whatever tunes <laughs> to, to like 20. And, um, so that was amazing. So then I'm making charts, um, on my iPad, which, you know, is really a modern miracle for musicians. Um, Apple pencil and iPad and this app called Fourscore, and man, I, it was like my external brain. Like if without that, I would not have been able to do it. Like unequivocally would not have been able to do it. There's just too many. But I mean, but I mean, how would you have done it? I mean, come on. If you, if Stan gets called you in the fifties and said, yeah, I need you. I would have pulled out a pencil and a piece of paper, but like. Right. So you would have, you would have figured it out. I mean, it just was, it was just, I mean, it would be, it's, it's time efficiency is what you're talking about. And sanity. Incredibly and efficient. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, you put it on a little mount and I got it like right down to the left of my hi-hat. It's pretty low key. You can barely even see it from the audience. And then I just preload like from my uh, CRB archive in there that eventually at the end of the tour, I think I had like 80 charts and there was like you know a handful of tunes I didn't need charts or anything for but I would just select each night I'd go with the set list and just select all those tunes put it into a set list on that that app and then it's got like a performance mode so you just like tap it and it goes to the next chart so it's like boom there I'm ready I'm checking it out I know what I need to do and like bam and, and what's actually really um, um, was kind of a, a cool and validating experience I was at uh, a panic, widespread panic show, watching Dwayne Trucks on the drums. Um, wow. And this dude, Dwayne is like, I think maybe just turned 30, and he is the son-in-law of Jimmy Herring, the brother of Derek Trucks, you know, nephew to Butch Trucks. This dude is like such a beast. <laughs> and he comes into this band, Widespread Panic, that's been around for 30 years. Right. For as long as he's been alive. <laughs> and there's fucking fans out there that know every single part of every single song so much better than he does. And he has to jump in and just play these three-hour-long shows and massive selection of songs. There's no way you can do that without having a book. So, like, he's got his book over to his left, and I was watching him play, and I could see, like, at the beginning of a phrase, he's, like, looking at it, and he's, like, okay, okay, cool. And then he's got it. And then he's looking back forward. 
And like I, <laughs> and you're like that's exa- that is so great. You have uh, you have brethren, dude. You have other brethren, dude. Uh, I, lo- I love I love that is so brethren. what a, that is brilliant. So wait, I just want to be clear. When when did you? Why were you able to narrow it from eighty to twenty with with CR? Because he sent out a set list for the first night show. Okay, so uh, but I mean that before. didn't mean that you know it wasn't like. Well, no, okay, you know, no. So then, like, after the first night, we played the first night, and then I think we had a day off. Like, that's the way that tour just started. It was, like, first night show, day off, and then, like, four nights. Right. No, I was on that. That was a great, that was the greatest tour ever, man. (laughs) It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We saw you in that and a couple other spots. Atlanta, too, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah, right. Um, So then every day off, I was shedding three to five new tunes that Chris would give me. He'd be like, he'd be like, okay, let's do Chauffeur's Daughter, Reflections on a Broken Mirror, and like, you know, whatever. I just, let's go with this one this week, or, you know, these three, or this, these five, or these four. So for the first four weeks, I mean, even under the fifth week of that tour, I think, I was, you know, I was shedding like three to five wow. new tunes every day off. Wow. So that was like, you know, six to ten new songs a week. So by the end of the tour, you know, we're up to like 60 to 80 tunes or something like that, you know? Um, but, yeah, without, I mean, the iPad 2, keeping it all in one place, I'm never losing, I'll never lose a chart. You know, I got it all backed up with the cloud. Even if this iPad burst in flames right now, <laughs> I would still have all those charts. If it burst <laughs> you know, into so. a flame, you'd be all right, dude. I mean, that's the way it feels like you're going to lose everything. And I just feel like, um, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, yeah, I mean. My dad lost all his shit in the fire when he was a kid. Uh, that's I think that. I've always kind of been afraid of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a paranoia. Yeah, so, um, I mean. I'm. I just let you know, man. Like you guys are going. Cats is playing New Orleans, but I still see nothing in the Southwest, dude. I'd love to see you guys come down to the uh, Southwest, man. Dude, I'll just tell. I'll just say, 2020 is going to be year of the cats. Yo. I, okay. Yo, wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Whoa. Are you China making some news here? What did China Cat Rider? What are you talking no, no, I about? Don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just saying. I just got a feeling. Well, I'm you know what, man? Uh, yeah. And that's, that's, you know, when I, I, I just feel like in some ways, this is just, you know, between me, you, and the world, I mean, in some ways, like, I would love to see uh, Kasa, Neil specifically, you know, branch out and, and do uh, a, a lot of a more of his own projects. And there's, there's obviously, you know, like, you know, logistical and, you know, livelihood reasons and things like that, but I just feel like... Um, you know, especially to see Cats just you know grow as a band would be, uh, would be fantastic. And I and I love like, you know, like the Skiffle players and you know like bands like that are great. You know, and it would be great yeah. to see them more on the road. I mean, that's what Horn says when I when I saw you guys in, in uh, Breckenridge or whatever. He was like, you know, every, everywhere I go, people are like, yo, where's Skiffle players? You know, so Cats, Skiffle. I just want more. I want to marinate more in that. You know. I think it's just the the, yeah, yeah, the vibrations just sort of well, we, yeah. Th- thanks, man. Thank you so much. No, no, I'm I'm, I'm gonna I'm coming to this. I I'm gonna try to get up to the to to upstate New York for like discathon. It's like June sixth okay. or something. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. 
Dis, I think it was Dis Jam. Dis, Dis Jam. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to yeah. go see Levy and Horn <laughs> fucking cook the groove, man, for three hours. Yeah, man, right on. Well, that, that'll be great to see us wherever you end up being able to make it to. Um, and, and you know, listen, and yeah, man. I'm, I mean, I'm, and, and then listen, uh, the other thing is if we'll stay in touch, but um, if there's a head weekend when you're playing in a few, a couple nights in and around Denver or Vail, Give me a heads up over the like. I, I'll definitely road trip up there to see you in any context, man. We, we you know, let's have a ball. Cool, man. Well, maybe um, we'll wait until the winter's over, so you make sure you don't get stuck in an avalanche. <laughs> Dude, I mean, <laughs> I was up there. I was nine thousand feet above sea level with you guys in January. That was the beginning. Yeah, you yeah, but you know, there was, um, of, there was a lot of snow then too. But there yeah, was, but now it's precarious. Yeah. You're saying it's really precarious. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yo, dude, okay. I'll get this whole thing together. I'll get this out to you in the next day or so, man. Cool, man. Yeah. Great Much love to you, Mark. You know, and uh, straight ahead, yeah, brother. Keep me abreast. And if you guys, like, come to Flagstaff or Phoenix, God forbid, come to Tucson, that would be epic, dude. Um, man, I wish I could. No, dude. Come <laughs> on. I mean, dude, 2020, 2020 year of like, cats, man. We'll figure it out. All good things in all good time, yeah, man. man. There's a, there's more. We got a recording. We just did a recording last week. Um, in New York, you were guys were in New York. Secret. Yeah, we were up in New York, but yeah, no, dude, my, my buddy was like, "Yo, Cats is in New York." I'm like, "Get out of here, dude." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Well, it's uh, hopefully everybody will be hearing what we were doing up there because um, we had a very special guest oh, on that session. Wow. Um, and I think you're really gonna you're gonna enjoy. Oh man, this is great, dude. Yo, man, I can't <laughs> wait, dude. Much love, Levy. Yeah, man. Right, Talk to you soon, Thank man. You so much, man. All right, baby. All right, yeah. Well. Later. Peace. Peace. Classic hat, Mark Levy, drummer for Circles Around the Sun. That's where I'm going. Jake Feinberg show out. Mm-hmm.